0: Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, powered by Christianity Today. As you can tell, my co-host, Doug Moister, is not on today. This is a solo interview that I'll be doing. I'm really excited about this interview. And as we talk in this interview, I was not anticipating this book being one that I would find so helpful, uh, but I did. This is a conversation we're going to have about the news and about media and discipleship And how can we as pastors be the kinds of people that help our church think through the amount of discipleship that is happening through the media and through technology? And what can we do about it? Uh, So I'm very excited about it. So our guest today is Jeffrey Bilbro. He's the Associate Professor of Writing at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and the Editor-in-Chief of Front Porch Republic. He's the author of a handful of books, including the newest book, Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. You're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jeff Bilbrough. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for being a guest here this morning on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to start with a confession here. I, I get lots of books sent to me. Uh, Doug and I do just be, of course, because as a podcast host, that's what publicists do. And uh, I get we get a lot of advanced reader copies. And in my stack uh, from IVP, I saw your book and I have to admit, I was not all that intrigued, not because it was a bad book, but I thought, oh, this is good, but I'm not sure this relates. However, just a few pages in, I found that I could not put the book down, Jeff. What you write on in this crucial uh, is of crucial importance to the church today that whenever we reach for our phones and we scan the newspaper uh, we get uh, caught up uh, not merely to be informed but also to be formed and your book unpacks this uh, the difference between information and formation i know you mentioned hegel who said that reading the morning newspaper is the realist's morning prayer Uh, and that's frightfully all too true The source of our news feeds have become uh, just increasingly discussed element of Christian spiritual formation. So I'm curious, Jeff, when did you sense that a book was needed on how Christians need to consume the news?
1: Well, well, thanks for your kind words. Uh, I I like to think at least part of that is the great cover design work that IVP did. Um, yeah, I I mean, I think as you said, it seems like it's becoming an increasingly uh, recognized problem. More and more people are seeing that, uh, the media that we consume is forming our souls. And, you know, as an academic, I I think I kind of came to this topic somewhat circuitously. I, my background really is, is in the works of Wendell Berry, uh, a Kentucky farmer and poet and novelist and essayist. And one of the reasons I've, uh, thought so much and appreciated, uh, Wendell Berry is his thinking about community and the importance of uh, healthy communities and the religious dimensions of community and and so on. And so in the last few years, uh, as I've turned to um, a a longer book project I'm in the middle of on uh, the industrialization of print in 19th century America, and how sort of print culture shifted, and contributed to political polarization and religious fragmentation. In 19th century America, I increasingly saw parallels between um, that era and today's era of digital media and how the digital media ecosystem was causing or at least contributing to uh, contemporary trends and shifts and dynamics that uh, paralleled in interesting ways earlier um, technological shifts and their effects. And I think, you know, Barry's work on community and thinking with Barry about community uh, sort of helped me key in on the ways that the media we consume really forms the kinds of communities that we imagine ourselves belonging to. Um, and then perhaps, so I was, all this was kind of in my mind. And then a couple of friends were having a Twitter exchange about the need for a book on how Christians should think about the news. And I thought, oh, yeah. all this is, all, I, could, I could do that. So it's kind of maybe ironic. Uh, since I think social media has a lot of problems, that the spark came via <laughs> Twitter, but that's the world I live in sometimes. So.
0: No, that's terrific, and this is so important for pastors to be thinking through: is how do we disciple our people to think through how we consume the news? And we've been told it's just about just if we get the right information or we just get the right credible sources. But you're saying it's much beyond that. And, uh, and you actually invite readers to take a step back and gain some theological and historical perspective on the nature and the purpose of the news. And as I read that, Jeff, I thought, I'm not sure I've ever thought through what is the purpose of the news. Uh, and I, I don't think this is something that Christians have thought a great deal about. And it's something that pastors need to think through. Uh, I, I'm assuming you would agree with me on that.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's easy to just sort of assume I need to be informed. Maybe even I have a moral obligation to be informed and to know what's going on. Um, and, and never really think, you know, to what end am I learning this? To what end am I reading this? Um, and I think just because we're told that, you know, this event is newsworthy, doesn't mean that we need to attend to it. It doesn't mean that we need to, mm-hmm. to, um, Agree. Oh, this is so important. This is unprecedented. This is vital for me to know. So I I, I want to kind of step back and think, what's the purpose of the news? And then hopefully that will guide us as we think about how to attend to it. Um, and and I guess you know to put it too simply, to my mind, the purpose of the news is giving us the the information and the community and the uh, the context that we need in order to love our neighbors well. Um, but, but so often it seems like the news becomes a source of entertainment or amusement or distraction, or it confirms my prior beliefs, you know, it's, it's not actually something that we're, um, engaging with to learn about, to then act on, uh, it's more of just another commodity that we can consume.
0: Mm-hmm. It just. It- it feels like there are so many BuzzFeed quizzes and just endless scrolling that we can engage in on social media. What does it mean to love God with all of our minds when it comes to reading the news?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, as your question uh, recognizes, the news is such a diverse, diffuse thing right now, right? Uh, It's, you you can read a long form essay, but that might be linked to in your social media feed next to a BuzzFeed news quiz or, you know, some random, uh, you know, random thing that doesn't, you know, the color of some dress. Right. And it's like, it's it's so hard (laughs) for our minds to know what's important. What should I, what should I attend to? Um, what should I follow? So thinking, you know, taking a step back and thinking more is not always better. You know, sometimes we just need silence. Um, sometimes we need to check out and then, uh, hopefully that, that kind of step back, um, gives us the space we need to figure out what we should be attending to and what we should be reading. And so it becomes less of a mindless scrolling and mindless clicking and a bit more, um, deliberate, I guess.
0: Mm. You've used the word community a few different times when it comes to the news. And I'm not sure there are many Christians or, or people in general that would actually think about the importance of cultivating community through how we consume the news. Um, in fact, you go even further on that of consuming the news and thinking critically, the Christian account of attention and time and community, and how that might inform our relation to the news. So let's start with this question of how does community and the news become related, and how does that then inform our identity? Uh, as humans and as followers of
1: Jesus. Yeah. And I guess I would want to say sort of two things. One is that, um, community, one of the ways that community is formed is by what we attend to sort of shared attention. And so our sense of belonging and community comes to large extent, um, from who we are attending with. Mm. So, uh, you know, if we are the kind of we might be the we might imagine ourselves to be the kind of people who attend to this political party's news or attend to this um you know industry's news or attend to this kind of uh, information um and that's not necessarily wrong, but I think it's important for us to recognize that we are actually uh, kind of being formed into a particular community by the kind of news or the the news platform that we uh use. And then secondly, I think it's also, you know, this is a, a long Christian tradition of this that has been reinforced by more recent social social psychologists uh, that recognizes that we are social thinkers. We, we don't think as individuals. We rather think uh, on the basis of our sort of biases and prejudices and intuitions, which are formed by the communities that we belong to. So uh, I think sometimes as, as good American individualists, we can overestimate our ability to practice individual discernment and to be critical thinkers and to be independent-minded and downplay the reality that so much of my sort of gut response to a headline or an event is predetermined and shaped by um, the community that, that I imagine myself belonging to. So mm-hmm. we're not, we're perhaps not as uh, rational and in, independent as we sometimes like to imagine ourselves. So that's why it's so important that we're really careful uh, about the the sort of communal roots from which we uh, engage what's happening around us.
0: One of the most uh, one of the most gripping thoughts in the whole book. You you quoted Thoreau, who said, "Read not the times, read the eternities," and then you articulated that. So, what did what do you sense that Thoreau meant by that? And then, what implications does that have for pastors and Christians today in how we think about the times and the eternities?
1: Yeah, well, I guess I should I should begin with a caveat. I mean, obviously, the book is titled "Reading the Times," so I don't think, and I think <laughs> Thoreau, as is his wont, uh, likes to kind of uh, coin these aphorisms mm-hmm. that are, are perhaps more strong than he actually thinks. So I don't think it's always wrong to read The Times, but I like the way he says that. And his point is, if we sort of enmesh ourselves in um, the trivial happenings of the day, you know, he talks about uh, courtroom drama. People would just go and watch the, the, the drama in the courtroom, which is obviously still a big thing today. Uh, he talks about politics um, as these things that can kind of consume us and get us all excited. But then we don't actually do anything with this information. Um, and so his his recommendation is read the eternities, read the stuff that lasts, um, the scriptures, and for Thoreau's scripture is not just Christian scripture, but other classic texts. Uh, he's not exactly the most orthodox Christian, but I think his insights are right that if we actually want to respond productively and even redemptively to the events of our day, we have to be rooted in uh, a longer perspective. So it's it's not that we ignore what's happening around us, but that we attend to it um, as people who have been formed and uh, conscripted even uh, into the Christian narrative. So I also point to um, Psalm one. You know this image of the blessed man who's rooted in the Word of God, as you know one way of thinking about Thoreau's aphorism. That if we're, if we are rooted in the word of God, then we'll be able to bear fruit that will bless our communities where we are uh, and the time that we are. But if um, uh, we're formed just by the ephemera of the day, then we're not going to have much to offer our neighbors.
0: Mm. So when I think about that phrase, you are what you eat, in some ways, you know, the news is kind of like a diet, right? And so what I'm hearing you say, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, it's okay to have a candy bar from time to time, like it's okay, it's not you know awful for us to enjoy some candy from time to time, but if our entire diet is nothing but candy, um we're gonna be in trouble, and so, yeah, you know, enjoy some of the candy bars, but let's do eat our our proverbial fruits and vegetables, let's make sure we have a balanced diet
1: um is that a fair is that a fair metaphor to use? yeah, I think that's exactly right, yeah and and part of Thoreau's argument and the way that I kind to develop it is is rooted in this idea that attention is reciprocal. And so we off we, we tend to think, maybe, that we can, you know, read a story and attend to this, but not be formed by it. And, mm-hmm. and my warning is that's not true. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. just like we can tend to think, oh, I can eat a candy bar and not be affected by it. Well, yeah, you can eat a few, but if that's your diet, then you will be affected by it. Um and, and Attention is is kind of um, it, etymologically it is related to or drives from this word for being stretched towards something um, uh-huh. tension, and I think and 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 that carries with it to this idea of being properly tuned right of, of appropriate stretching. So I think that I like that etymology because it gets at this idea that we stretch toward what we are reading and thinking about. We mm. are actually being shaped. Formed, pushed by what we uh, contemplate, and so um, we should then be careful about you know you know what we spend our time thinking about and uh, attending to uh, because it will inevitably shape us.
0: That that's a beautiful image, Jeff, because that idea of stretching towards almost feel like a craning of a neck, you know, like just kind of leaning towards, but also that idea of, yeah, stretching and tuning. You know, we always, we we sing that beautiful hymn, like tune our hearts, you know, to hear your, like, like what a beautiful image of, of just this, this tune. We want to be in tune with, with the spirit and what God is up to. Um, you know, it's been said among a lot of pastors that I talk with that there's just a war on people's attention right now. I'm right. I mean, Netflix recently, you know, famously said, like, our biggest competitor is not against other streaming services like Amazon. It's, it's sleep. And they are at war against people's sleep. They're trying to keep them awake even longer. And I thought, man, it is a war with our attention. You also mentioned that attention, I think you were quoting uh, someone else, but you said attention is a source of prayer. Uh, how can we think about this idea of stretching and tuning with the etymology of attention and this idea of prayer and knowing we're at a war right now with people's attention, how does all of that uh, congeal together?:
1: Yeah, I think I was getting that from uh, Simone Vey, um, the, the French mystic. And, and I guess maybe to, to continue on with this idea, this etymology, you know, another word that we get from this root is, is tend," that um, caring for, you know, ideally, um, what we attend to we then learn to tend to, we learn to care for. Uh, and mm-hmm. that I, I hope is a way of reminding ourselves that the end of um, attention and reading the news and attending to our neighbors should be love, should be um, doing something and caring for them. And um, sort of looking toward that action as, as the purpose to tell us maybe can help us um, turn away from those kinds of information consumption uh that's purely amusement and purely um a distraction you know and that's that's where you get that kind of bloated feeling I've, I've learned so much i know so much but there's nothing i can do uh there's no way that i can respond to this information and i think that's what's particularly unhealthy uh, and mm-hmm. can promote this sense of um doom scrolling or uh, helplessness and the sense that these problems are so huge. So finding ways to then act on what we learn uh, is an important uh, corollary, I guess, to, to attending appropriately.
0: Yeah. And that's great. And let's, it, we've kind of been up here in the, th- in the theory, which is good. Let's, let's drill down. I'm a practical person. And, and so let's, let's be a little more practical here. Um, I know if I'm understanding you right, you're not saying to shut off all news forever. Don't listen to the news delete all social media channels. Um, but I know that you suggest some practices in order to counter some of the media consumption habits that currently have a hold on who we are. So what are some of those healthier ways that we can re- read and, more importantly, live the news as we're reading it?
1: Yeah, so one of the, the suggestions I make uh, comes from you know people like Thoreau, actually, or, or Thomas Merton, people who... Um, Really tried to root themselves in the eternities, but also uh, became experts in particular pressing social challenges of their day. You know, Thoreau was very concerned about slavery, about war, uh, empire industrialization. Thomas Merton was very concerned about nuclear war and racism, uh, and so they thought deeply about these particular issues and, and wrote and acted on them. So I think finding, you know, we as individuals are not called know everything about everything. That's, that's, we're limited human (laughs) beings. Say that
0: again, Jeff, because that's really, really
1: important. (laughs) (laughs) So, so if we're not supposed to know everything about everything, you know, what is God calling us to attend to? What is our particular vocation? And then, you know, read some books, you know, maybe, maybe God's calling you to think about racism or maybe God's calling you to think about um, uh, environmental challenges or urban development or whatever the case may be. uh, And, you know, read some some history about that topic, read some long form essays about it. Um, that will ha- help your news consumption to be not just, um, oh, woe is me, the world is, is coming to an end, here's another terrible thing, but uh, rather you'll actually know something and maybe be able to contribute to the conversation or inform your neighbors or ideally take action and, and find ways to, um, to act on, on that particular issue. So I think, Recognizing that we're limited people with particular vocations should um, kind of give us the relief from that, that impossible burden of staying up to date on everything.
0: So are you saying like kind of pick a major? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind, of, kind of hone in on something that you really feel like God has called us to, to really care about yeah. and drill down into that. Yeah. Okay, great. And what other advice would you have for pastors in how they preach or teach or disciple, whether it's from the pulpit or one-on-one, just helping people view the news the way that you advocate for here in the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as you pointed out, uh, a lot of pastors and Christians are recognizing this as a, a big problem right now. And I think one... One point that might might be helpful is is making that link between news consumption and community, and recognizing that part of the partisanship, uh, part of the ideological divides, stem from the fact that we tend to belong more to, to the people that we read the news with than we do to the people that we worship with. Uh, hmm. A couple of years ago, Tim Keller had a, uh, I think an interview in the Atlantic, maybe, and he talked about how you know pastors or Christians get one hour to form their congregation at church, but then these people are formed 10 hours a week by MSNBC or Fox News or whatever. And so that becomes their primary identity. You know, I am a Fox News person or I'm an MSNBC person. That's my tribe. And I also go to church. And so naming that problem doesn't solve it, but I think uh, we have to find ways to... um, have more time together as the church. Have more uh, opportunities for, for church community formation, so that we disciple each other uh, into membership uh, with the body of Christ, rather than membership of a particular media out, outlet or platform.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and I know you you mentioned that kind of a good rule of thumb is to be wary of the trivia but devoted to the eternal truths. And you mentioned in the book about Blaise Pascal and his confidence in God's provision by cultivating a holy apathy, this sort of sancta differentia. And I'm curious, talk a little bit more about what he meant by that sancta differentia, that faithful action that's not concerned with results. How do we do that in a hyper-technological, hyper-media world?
1: Yeah, I think Pascal has this really fascinating letter to his brother-in-law, I think, where he talks about this. Um, And I think it's kind of striking when you think, he's just really riffing on this idea of providence. And if we actually believe that God is working all things out, uh, then we are freed from the impossible burden of fixing the world. You know, we're not responsible for outcomes, basically. We're just responsible for faithful action. Um, and I think, you know, so many of the debates in the news these days are framed around who's winning the culture war or the political issue. And we're so upset. It's kind of this horse race coverage, right? Politics or culture or whatever, as a sport almost. And and winning is all that matters. Um, and this idea of sort of holy indifference, holy apathy, reminds us that God's won. We don't have to win. We're responsible for for being faithful and and um you know, following him, but not for winning. So I think that frees us from this impossible burden. And I, and I do, I try to articulate that this is not, um, the, the, not something for privileged people. It's not something that only depends on those who are safe. So you don't have to worry about this law being passed or this thing uh, because you have enough money. That's not what I'm talking about. That there is a kind of indifference that maybe is culpable, but rather I'm talking about the, the kind of indifference that the martyrs had, right? They knew they weren't gonna win as the world understands winning, and yet they, they were faithful. And I think that's a, a healthy posture toward the news that we um, don't care about the outcome perhaps, uh, which is easier said than done, but uh, focus on, on being faithful to what God has called us in this moment. So yeah, uh, if we have a high view of providence, that might free us from obsessing about the news. Mm.
0: I thought often, as I was reading your book about the Amish community, and I I think, you know, there's a lot of Amish around us here in in the Pennsylvania area. And the Amish, I think, are often misunderstood when it comes to technology, right? We think, oh, they just think all technology is bad and wrong. Not at all. In fact, they embrace technology, but only when they're convinced it will not harm community. And it gets back to the idea of community that you're talking about, and so I actually think we need to embrace much more of an Amish approach to discernment regarding uh, technology, saying it's not that it's bad, but when it's at odds and it's detrimental to the community and our identity together as, as the people of God, that's when we need to rethink it uh, and maybe reject it. And uh, anyway, I, I found that to be interesting. So I want to follow up with that, um, knowing that we live in what sometimes feels like a social media addicted world to the point that even churches can't get away from that. I mean, you know, especially the last year we're streaming our services online now, right? People need that information. So I would imagine that there are pastors out there that are saying, well, I mean, how else are we going to reach the culture, especially the younger culture, Jeff? I mean, we have to engage in social media. So how do we find that balance of engaging with social media in very appropriate ways? but also at the same time not falling into the trap uh, and even generating more and more information that gets our own people hooked on the social media even further that we're actually helping to produce. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think pointing to the Amish and their model of kind of communal discernment of technology is a helpful one because it reminds us that these are not just individual decisions, right? But that, that the tools that we adopt Shape our communities. And so it's not just like, oh, uh, this is a neutral tool that we can use and nothing changes. Um, you know, what, one source I found helpful here, my friend Alan Noble has this book called Disruptive Witness. Uh, and he talks about some of these tensions and ways that I think are good. And he talks about how uh, it's so tricky because when the church adopts um, certain technologies or certain methods of the business world, say, oftentimes we end up commodifying the gospel and, and turning the gospel into just one more, you know, uh, lifestyle preference. Um, so he has some good, good advice, I think, in that book. But part of, I guess, the challenge is, is naming what you just said, that, that these tools are inevitably going to affect the shape of our community and then setting up boundaries, right? Maybe we do have to stream uh, services during a pandemic, but uh, that's probably not a good long-term strategy, right? That, that some tech tools, maybe we can use them creatively, but we might have to use them against their grain, right? If the church is going to use these tools redemptively, we're going to have to use them differently than they were intended, perhaps. Um, so yeah, just thinking that because you have your church or whatever has a popular Instagram feed, you're doing the Lord's work. Eh, probably, probably not the, the right thought.
0: So you also talk about practices that I found to be really interesting. I highlighted these, some practices, some counter practices on this. So you talked about things like walking, subscribing to certain uh, magazines or publications aspirationally, diversifying your newsfeed. Uh, Can you you unpack some of those practices of what you mean by walking and subscribing aspirationally and diversifying a newsfeed?
1: Yeah, so the, the walking one uh, is, in, is intended to just be one example of a way that we can um, kind of recalibrate how we imagine ourselves or who we imagine ourselves belonging to. So if uh, we spend most of our attention, our time on social media or these sort of far-flung uh, conversations, we can forget uh, the people that we belong to who share our neighborhood or our city. Um, and I think there's some great examples. I mean, the, I, I cite Chris Arnotti, who's uh, Catholic, sort of, um, but he's a journalist who uh, was a well, he was a, a financial guy in New York City, and uh, started just walking through some of the poorer parts of of New York City, and uh, kind of shifted his sense of community from his other highly successful PhD, big money earning financial people to uh, these people who were living right nearby. Mm. but normally he never came in contact with. Mm. And so I think um, walking can be a powerful way of reminding us that uh, we have neighbors who are very different from us and who don't share our news bubbles. uh, And we need to think about how what's going on in the world and in our communities affects these neighbors too, um, not just the people that we debate with on Facebook. So uh, Mm. that's one way of kind of orienting us uh, outside of these news bubbles and, and back into our places. And, and the subscribe aspirationally recommendation uh, just gets back to, to this, this observation about the communal power of uh, attention. So uh, rather than you know, dunking on, on the news sources you think are dumb or have the wrong view, or rather than kind of uh, hiding yourself in, in a safe tribe of people who all think exactly like you think and reinforce your own beliefs, you know think about what what kind of Christian communities or what kind of um people do I admire who who do I want to think like who mm. do I want to live like uh and and then try to to subscribe to the publications that they're producing. So, you know, I really admire um speak of the Amish, uh the Bruderhof community who mm-hmm. is um sort of in the same zone. Mm-hmm. Um but I think they're they're doing really good Christian work. And so I I enjoy reading the the quarterly magazine that they produced uh plow quarterly <laughs> and um or you know like world magazine um another christian publication they they highlight every year they have long in-depth stories on nonprofits doing you know community work whether it be fighting poverty or uh fighting any kind of systemic uh structural problem in their in their communities so um i think Reading those kinds of publications changes how you imagine yourself belonging and kind of reorients your uh, your perspective on the events of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. That was really helpful for me to to have you articulate in the book about subscribing aspirationally. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I do think that is incredibly important. And then, of course, diversifying your news feeds. I mean, one of the things that I've practiced, and maybe why I was resonating with what I was reading in your book, is. Uh, I have just found myself, if I'm going to be on one news feed that might be on one side, I will never just log off. I always have to then click on that. If one is local, then I will go national. If one is national, I will go local or even international because I don't want to be co-opted by the news. I I really don't. And so that, for me, I I found myself nodding when you talked about diversifying your news feed. There's even, and, and I'm not, this isn't any sort of promotional the thing here, but there's a, a website called AllSides.org, which has been incredibly helpful for me to just know even the source, the angle, and the slant of which a story begins with, helps me think more critically about the news. And so AllSides.org have, has been incredibly helpful for me. But there's one more uh, practice in there that I found really interesting. You you quoted Thomas Merton, who said flatly that quote Christians should have quiet homes, and should beware of the TV and radio with their incessant chatter. And I think it said, uh, those who love God should attempt to preserve or create an atmosphere in which he can be found. Boy, that's really good. How do we go about doing that? Are you saying, you know, and as Merton's saying, just just kick the TV to the curb and, and don't ever have any, you know, sort of technology in your home. How do we live and cultivate
1: quiet lives as Christians at home? Yeah, I mean, Merton is a, a monk, right? So it's easy to to think <laughs> that's just something that he can say and the rest of us uh don't have that luxury. But I think, you know, I I was really impressed and I've been helped by um Andy Crouch's book, Techwise Family, mm. which I think has a lot of practical advice. And he does a nice job, I think, of of not saying, you know, th- throw away all technology, but you've got to put limits on it and you've got to preserve, you know, he has a kind of a whole I think he takes two weeks off in the summer from from all uh internet and one day off a week, uh, and at least a couple of hours every day, you know? And so there's these blocks of silence. Um, and, and I definitely have, I have adopted some of those, um, especially the, the sort of summer internet fast, if I can pull that off. Uh, I don't have a smartphone. I think that helps. I think there's, there's ways um, that we can kind of limit um, the time when we're plugged in and thinking about uh, the news. And so it's, it's one thing. I'm, yeah, I'm not saying don't read the times, ignore what's going on, but um, rather make sure there's plenty of silence uh, and, and contemplation in your life because that's the the grounding that we need to be able to um, discern what's going on and respond redemptively.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you talk a lot about, uh, well, I'm so glad, and maybe we can sort of end on this big topic here, but the idea of like, Kronos and Kairos. And I'm so glad. I mean, that's, that's a big part of what we do here. Uh, You know, Kairos Partnerships is the name of our organization that started the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. And so this idea was Kronos or Kronos, Kairos or Kairos, but, but the idea that, you know, Jesus lived in this Kronos Kairos world. And I'm so glad you talked about that. And I think that's probably even the, um, you know, the Thoreau read the, don't read the times, read the eternities, right? We focus so much on the Kronos that we miss the Kairos. And so how do we do that as Christians when we are called to a kairos mindset but we live in a chronos world? I mean Jesus as you mentioned in the book knows about current events, right? He was sort of asked to he was thrust into making some sort of big statement about an event and, and he could have made it a, a a kairos sort of meaning to it but he chose not to. How do we find that balance in in kairos and chronos?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you name this tension that we have that as humans we're uh we have to live in. One source I point to that's really helpful I think too is the Old Testament prophets. Um mm. because like Jesus, uh they're very concerned with current events with economic inequality or with um you know foreign affairs. I mean there's all kinds of ways you can plug in, you know, our our media topics and media frames and see that in the prophets. And yet they always um comment on or speak to these issues from the perspective of um god's covenant with israel and, and the law and the narr- and the sort of the, the the old testament stories so um they're not they're, they're grounding their perspective is this is the, the action of god's creation and redemption in the world that's who we belong to and how uh we prioritize uh everything and yet this does have relevance for what's going on uh, today in your life. This does have relevance for this economic problem or for this situation. Um, so kind of keeping I think the prophets just uh, are a helpful reminder that or uh, a helpful model, I guess, for how to read the times from the perspective of the eternities and and they show that this is definitely possible um, but but not easy in our contemporary moment, which so privileges and what's going on right around us, and tends to kind of forget that longer, eternal perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm so glad that you also started at this conversation talking about Wendell Berry. I think in in many ways, Wendell Berry, the idea of community and identity, and Kronos versus Kairos. I mean, I think that's that's a huge. Uh, th- those are huge themes of what uh, he writes about. So it's always good. I mean, I knew you'd be a good interview, uh, but I'm really glad to hear that you have such a, a, a strong affinity and, uh, love for Wendell Berry as well. Oh yeah. Uh, we're big Wendell Berry fans. Good. Very good. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, for the opportunity to just pick your brain and to hear a little bit more about, uh, how we can begin to live into this reading the times, a literary and theological inquiry into the news. Congratulations on the book. And thanks for being on the Monday morning pastor podcast.
1: Oh, thanks very much. I really enjoyed this conversation.